Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, more equal and more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with Jenny Gorruth, MSP. Jenny has been the MSP for Mid Fife and Glenrothes since 2016, and has served in the Scottish Parliament's Justice and Education Committees. She now serves as our Minister for Culture, Europe and International Development in the Scottish Government. A graduate of both Glasgow and Strathclyde Universities, she's worked for over a decade in education prior to becoming an MSP. Jenny, thank you for joining us on Scotland's Choice. Thank you, Drew. Uh, glad to be here. Jenny, uh, Scotland, as part of the UK, uh, joined what would become the EU in 1973. In your view, what were the biggest benefits to Scotland and to, indeed to the people of Scotland as a result of being part of the EU? Thanks, Drew. Well, I think there were a number of benefits um, for Scotland being in the EU, but I think we should also reflect that the EU itself was born in a, an era of uh, cooperation and um, following an era, of course, of, of conflict. And that's hugely important in terms of Scotland and our values, I think, um, in a world which has a number of different challenges just now. Um, I think freedom of movement, of course, has been a huge benefit to, to Scotland and we know, of course, of the numbers of people who've come to live and work in Scotland, equally the number of Scots who've travelled to, to European countries too. And that freedom of movement, particularly um, apparent in schemes like the Erasmus scheme, which um, I know that St Andrews, which is uh, up the road where I went to school um, when I was younger, was hugely important to that small university in a small town in Fife because it actually made St Andrews uh, multicultural, it made it international, and it made it um, a very different environment to grow up in, uh, perhaps other parts of Fife, and I think it had lots of different advantages. It also contributed, of course, um, a number of funding opportunities for the university, so the university hugely benefited that, not just in the, the sharing of skills and talent people, but that financial importance too. So huge impacts um, losing that um, in terms of our kind of uh, educational expertise in Scotland. Um, but I think just speaking to that broader point more generally, being back in the EU gives us that opportunity to work in solidarity with others. And that was, of course, the founding principles of the EU. If we go back to when it was founded, that was what it was all about. And uh, I think that speaks to the values that we hold dear in Scotland and, and hope, of course, that we'll be back in there not before long. Well, you've, you've listed there a, a, a long list of benefits of being in the EU, but one, one of the points you made right at the start of that answer was the fact that you know Europe was traditionally a place that was a place of conflict and the yeah. EU is actually, and, and what came before that and uh, what it morphed into is actually been able to maintain peace for a, for the longest period of time I think in Europe's history. So, uh, so uh, as you say, it appeals to the uh, values, and, and and those are just some of the benefits to Scotland of being in the EU. In light of all of that, the big and the small, uh, why do you think the Tory Party in Westminster became so fixated over the issue of Europe? <laughs> I think that's a great question. Uh, I think the, the Conservative Party have historically always had a real challenge in this space. 
Um, and I don't think it's ever gone away. And there have always been Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party. So to some extent, it's been their internal uh, brawl that has spilled out into our politics um, because they needed to resolve it. And unfortunately, we've all ended up paying the price um, in the, the face of Brexit. But, you know, you can reflect on figures like Margaret Thatcher, who, of course, campaigned at the time to, mm. to join the EU, but she can't really believe now, reflecting on where we are with the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson. But, you know, she and other Conservatives were avid supporters of EU membership. They wanted us to be in there. They recognised mm. the benefits that being a member brought with it. And um, I know it was before my time, it was before I was born, that, <laughs> that she um, uh, was around and involved in the campaign. But I always remember that picture, um, or I know the picture of her wearing uh, lots of different flags, of course, of the, the European Union and uh, advocating the benefits of membership. And to contrast that Conservative Party with today, it's remarkable that we can say with certainty that the Conservative Party has lurched further to the right than the Conservative Party under mm. um, Margaret Thatcher. And the driving force behind that has been, I think, Brexit and a need to reclaim what the Conservatives perceive as sovereignty. So that mm. obsession with sovereignty drives everything the Conservative Party now uh, talk to with regard to Brexit. It is their driving ambition to take back control, to, to you know, have this absolute sovereignty, even if it doesn't make sense, even mm. if it might be bad for the country, that's more important to them um, than ultimately, uh, you know, being a, an active role and leading member, really, of the mm. European Union, which in the past was so important to Conservative Prime Ministers and predecessors of the current administration. I think, of course, Cameron was no doubt under a lot of pressure on the issue. And of course, he committed to holding that referendum. Um, I don't think that Cameron ever thought that we would get to uh, a, vote, a leave vote. I don't think um, many forecasters at the time thought that would happen. But ultimately, we all paid the price because he kowtowed to um, those on his back benches who uh, wanted out of the European Union. And now uh, we are where we are. Um, but I think it's been a long running sore in the Conservative Party. And I'm not sure that Brexit actually resolves it. Um, for the party more generally um, because I think there are a number of people in the mm. Conservative Party who now recognise that it was a mistake. Mm. And, and interesting you're talking about the referendum because people all uh, will make the comparison between us wanting a referendum for Scotland and that you know there be, having been a referendum which we can you know we complain about the result of in the rest of the UK but there's a very different process there I remember being in Parliament when they announced the snap referendum there wasn't yeah. any white paper or discussion or anything like yeah. that about it other than a few promises that have been told that come to uh, to mean absolutely nothing or indeed to mean exactly the opposite such as the 350 million pounds a week for uh, for the NHS and and, and famously, we we're talking about rising energy prices at the moment. Boris Johnson yeah. promised that energy prices would be cheaper after Brexit. Right. You know, these are all the kinds of sound bites that uh, that were used in that really snap uh, decision. So, no thoughtful uh, period of reflection, no ability to discuss the issues, and in going into that. And isn't it ironic that in 2014, the Better Together campaign was telling Scotland that the only way to keep us in the EU. Uh, was to vote no, and it's the very same established that establishment that dragged us out just a couple of years later. What does it say to you about the state of the union that sixty-two percent of Scottish voters and every single council area in Scotland voted to remain in the EU, yet we had to leave? And um, I think just to reflect on some of those points, Drew, I, you know, 
to compare the, the Scottish referendum that we went through in 2014 with the, the Brexit referendum, it's chalk and cheese. And you spoke about the, the white paper and the kind of, I guess, the preparation that went into um, the referendum we held in 2014 in comparison to that mm. 2016 very kind of, as you say, it was a kind of snap election that, that took place very quickly, if you remember, on the heels of a Scottish Parliament election. I think mm. I'd only been an MSP a few weeks before mm. um, the uh, the EU referendum was, was held. And it was it came, I think, as a shock to all of us. But it was at a time when that kind of level of dialogue and discussion had just not been engaged in, in the same way. But to take it back, I guess, to how it affects the union. I think Brexit breaks the union. Mm. And I think there is a well understood recognition of that um, from uh, a number of your colleagues in Westminster who understand that. Um, the feeling that Brexit pulls at the union and really the, the democratic deficit is exposed in its totality. You can see that in election result after election result since 2014, but obviously since 2016 in particular, whereby it's not going away the different voting intentions of different parts of the UK. And I think we also need to remember in Scotland that it isn't just about us, it's also about Wales and Northern Ireland and what Brexit does to them too. And we see that in the way that the devolved governments have been treated um, since the Brexit vote, but equally in the intervening years in terms of the governance being, you know, it's been completely unacceptable. And if I can just reflect some of my own experiences, we were, for example, invited to take part in the Partnership Council meeting between the EU and the UK government. That was in June. So the devolved administrations were entitled to, we were allowed to attend, we were not allowed to speak. And we were there on equal footing with the Crown dependencies. Now, that's not acceptable. The The way that, you know, Brexit uh, has been, well, has unravelled, it impacts on so many different areas of devolved competence. And if we're not at the table, we need to, to be in those conversations. We need to find out how it's going to affect Scottish businesses. You know, we need to be involved in getting our uh, organisations in Scotland ready for changes that need to take place. There is uh, already a number of different bureaucratic challenges to businesses in terms of uh, imports and exports. And all of that detailed discussion we have been frozen out of. So um, there's a real impact, not just on Scotland and our future, but I think on the future of the United Kingdom more generally, because of the tensions it's put on the relationships between the devolved governments and the UK government. And as another example, there has not been a JMCEN meeting since um, last December. So we had the Brexit deal rushed through on Christmas Eve. There was then a JMCEN in between Christmas Eve and New Year. And that was the end of it. Mm. So the UK government, I think, often forget about the devolved governments in this relationship. They forget about our competencies here. Um, sometimes I think it's deliberate. More often than mm. not, I think it's uh, you know an afterthought. They just don't remember yeah. to involve us. But I would note that there is something quite deliberate going on in the UK government at the moment, which is the role of Michael Gove, who, of course, um, only last week has retained a role here in terms of the levelling up agenda and his uh, interest in the union. And... Um, Mr Gove, of course, has been involved in a number of these different meetings um, with the UK government and the EU. And um, I think he understands very well the importance of the devolved governments in these conversations. And that's absolutely why he's also got a secondary agenda, which is through the levelling up um, mm. uh, aspirations. And the Internal Market Act allows the UK government, of course, um, to undermine devolution and the powers of the Scottish Parliament. So Brexit has broken Britain, but it will ultimately lead to an independent Scotland. And in the meantime, this 
the time that we're living through just now, it's hugely important that we continue to make the case, of course, for Scottish independence, but also for Scotland to be back in the EU and benefiting from the things that we previously did for, for so many years. Um, it's hugely important that we are, are able to, to make that case positively to the people of Scotland so that we don't allow the UK government in the interim to uh, continue to undermine devolution in the way that they, they have been for um, the last, um, well, at least since uh, the, the last referendum. Well, and, and I think the, you you are making the, the, the point there that Brexit, from all of you have said there, that Brexit has really uh, kind of highlighted what's uh, been happening to Scotland. We've done a number of podcasts now with uh, no to yes voters, people who voted no in 2014. And yeah. one of the big factors for them, and we know a lot of people were already persuaded from the result in 2014 that Scotland should be independent. But in that group of people who weren't, one of the big factors was that Brexit shone a light how on how Scotland was either ignored or indeed mismanaged or uh, indeed used as a sacrificial lamb in certain cases, um, you know, by uh, by Westminster and some of the politicians uh, down there. So that made a big difference. But you were talking there about the uh, the, the when the the final act of Brexit was pushed through. That uh, the 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 Brexit farce kind of came to a head. Um, you know, when they, the, the Tories pushed through Brexit at the worst possible time, quite literally. Uh, and Scotland finds itself outside the EU and the single market during a pandemic, uh, when we've got all kinds of other problems that have been happening to there. Just how damaging has that been to the everyday lives of uh, people in Scotland? I think it's been hugely damaging. I think some of the damage is yet to be felt. And some of it is now becoming very apparent. Um, people think Brexit, often people think Brexit happened in 2016. Some then might think, well, it happened in January 2020. We need to remind people consistently that the transition period provided a buffer. And the Tories pushed through that hard Brexit during the pandemic in December uh, 2020. That was a political choice. And yeah. it was very yeah. deliberate because we know that COVID impacts to some extent have been mass, uh, have mastered out of the impacts of Brexit. So we know that that suited the Conservatives' agenda to make sure Brexit was delivered there and then. But secondly, the transition period was really important because it gave business that buffer until the end of 2020. And I think people often forget that. Um, and of course, you know, the Conservatives have again made a political choice not to extend that transition period, yeah. which deliberately and deeply has damaged business and which could have been avoided. But in terms of kind of the impacts on Scottish exports, we know that I think in the first quarter of 2021, our exports were down by 15%. Um, in monetary terms, uh, the volume of exports fell by 25%. In terms of the kind of start reality of where we are, we know that there are a number of crushing kind of impacts uh, in terms of what we're feeling just now in Scotland. So first one, I guess, being pretty obvious, a significant factor being a, a shortage of lorry drivers. So the freight transport industry, mm. we know that it lacks, um, I think, 90,000 drivers at this moment in time, the result of a year-long suspension mm. of training. Um, but it's also due to an exodus of EU haulers too. So we need to be aware of that. And we know that a number of these haulers left the UK for their homes um, in the year to June 2020, of course, during the pandemic, and only some of those have returned. So that's one of the really kind of obvious mm. impacts. We don't have enough drivers. Um, we also have other labour shortages, so we've got an issue in terms of agriculture and construction, we've got issues in hospitality, and a lot of these impacts are also intersect with an immigration system which isn't fit for purpose, mm, and you'll be aware that we in Scotland of course have consistently called for the devolution of migration powers to the Scottish Parliament, 
Now, I think that argument sits separately to independence, but Michael Gove, we need to remember, was telling everybody in the 2016 campaign, in the EU referendum campaign, that if um, Britain were to leave the EU, then the Scottish Parliament would get the powers over immigration. And that mm. has not been the case. And of course, I'm sure that's He's not He's not arguing for it anymore, is he? No, Absolutely. No. But they're not making that case anymore. And mm. it's interesting because if you want to try and sell the benefits of um, you know, Brexit, and I certainly don't, uh, people like Michael Gove should remember the promises they were making Indeed. to the people of Scotland in 2016. And we in government, of course, um, and you, yourselves, of course, in Westminster, need to consistently remind them of that. Um, and not let them away with it. And I guess the third really obvious thing is, is in terms of red tape. So mm. the red tape and the additional bureaucracy that comes with Brexit makes mm. it very, very difficult for um, smaller businesses in particular to export. And we know in Scotland that we have a larger number of small to medium businesses because of the way in which our economy is structured. Mm. And that makes it much harder for these businesses, one, to export, but two, to survive. So some of these businesses might end up going to the wall purely because of this bureaucratic red tape. Mm. The irony of which, um, the UK, well, not the UK government now, but the Brexiteers certainly in 2016 were telling us this was the whole purpose of Brexit, was to get rid of the red tape. And yet now yeah. we have a Brexit engineered and voted for by the UK government, uh, which has increasingly um, demands a number of different bureaucratic changes and challenges for business that mean it's much more complicated for business. Mm -hmm. And you, you were, you're making that point about it's complicated for business. I cover international trade and I've raised in the Westminster Parliament a number of times they've, uh, the, the, the costs, the additional costs on top of all that red tape the businesses are facing. You know, for example, there's a distillery in my constituency which now has 20% more on its cost of goods for things like cardboard and glass because of the way the supply chain used to work. Um, and these are things that aren't really publicised very much, but do make an yeah. impact. And, and of course, there are longer term impacts as well. The, the research that was backed up by the House of Commons Library shows that Scotland will lose £9 billion of GDP in exports by 2030. Now, that's uh, those are figures that will be used to say that Scotland's somehow failing or, or you know, can't be independent in the future by the Tories, you know, so they'll create this damage, yeah. which they've done time and time again, and then say, oh, it's because you can't do it, rather than the policies yeah. that we've put in place. When, when Scotland holds a referendum in, on our future, as anticipated in 2023, and as we hope there is a result that provi provides a yes vote, soon after, Scotland would become an independent state. At that point... Uh, that particular point would be outside both the UK and the EU. This would come with challenges, wouldn't it? What what would the main ones be and how can we overcome them? Yeah, I think it will come with a, a number of challenges, but I suppose we in the SNP need to say, well, hang on a second, there will be challenges, but we need to remember we haven't exactly come from a position where there haven't been any challenges. So mm. the last 10 years, I often think as well, because of the pandemic, we, we tend to forget what came before it. You know, Scotland's lived under a decade of austerity that we didn't vote for. So from the bedroom tax to the rape clause, these kind of policies which um, eroded the welfare state but equally harmed our people mm. uh, are hugely important about where we want to go next. The cuts to universal credit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my constituency, Midfife and Glenrothes, will be the fifth worst affected by those cuts after parts of Glasgow and Scotland. And I Increases think in national that, insurance, the, yeah, you know, the, the fact that pensions triple lock is being removed, so there'll be lower uh, yeah. than inflation uh, rises in pensions, all those kinds of things are happening right now. 
Yep, and they're intersecting with devolved areas too. So there's a challenge because we want to pull Scotland in a different direction. So we've got good, new, powerful devolved benefits like the Scottish welfare payment, which is hugely important. And yet at the same time, you've got a Westminster government, which is eroding um, what provisions the state used to have in place to help support poorer families particularly. And we need to, I think, as opposed to thinking about the challenges of an independent country, remember and recognise we're not starting from a blank slate here. We are starting from a position whereby Scotland has been pulled, whether we like it or not, to the right on a number of different issues mm. by a party that we ultimately didn't vote for. So what that means then is the Scottish Parliament or the Scottish Government's job has been in the last 10 years to provide that buffer and to mitigate against the impacts of austerity. And that isn't, as we know, what the, the Parliament was meant to do when it was first yeah. created. So I think there's a challenge to us in Scotland to remind people of that fact too, that if we're not having to create this buffer against taxes or against uh, benefits cuts rather that we did not vote for, that are harming our people ultimately, we'll be able to create a better system that looks after the people that live and work here. So I think our challenge um, is more about reminding people of that, of that fact and then about saying, and hang on a second, what values do we hold dear here in Scotland? Mm -hmm. and, one of the ways we've been able to do that really successfully um, recently is through things like the Citizens' Assemblies, which have reached out to people to um, almost depoliticise topics that might have been quite challenging in the past and allow people that space to talk more openly about the way in which they would like to see Scotland move forward. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a really exciting time um, and, uh, you know, setting aside the challenges that austerity brought with it and COVID and Brexit. We now need to say to the people, hang on a second, how are we going to start to rebuild? And, and of course, you'll know that our argument is we can't rebuild without the full powers of an independent country. Indeed, and, and that brings me to a point that was made by Roger Mullen in a previous Scotland's Choice podcast, where he's saying, you know, look, it's not about whether or not Scotland can afford to be independent. Yeah. It's whether or not Scotland can afford to remain in the UK, because you're right, Absolutely. in my constituency, we used to have one food bank in Inverness, we've now got uh, four, in fact, and more out in the satellite areas in our communities as a result of policies that have been imposed upon us. We're, we see Westminster looking to renew Trident and, and indeed to grow Trident um, weapons of mass destruction at uh, you know enormous cost. These are different choices you'd be making. And of course, finally on that, you would say that the, the evidence of our near neighbours, both inside the EU, such as our independent Ireland, where they're uh, racing ahead in terms of their ability, their economy, or indeed outside the EU, like Norway, uh, yeah. where they're doing that, just proves that... Uh, you know, the, the mismanagement of Scotland has been going on for too long. Absolutely. Let, let, let me ask you, would there be any advantages to being fully independent during the transition back into the EU? Well, I suppose the one advantage would be that we weren't governed by a Conservative <laughs> uh, government we didn't vote for. I think it's quite um, a big one. So, so yeah. there, there's that obvious advantage, as it were, but, um, you know, you'll be aware of our policy in terms of the SNP's aspirations that we um, would seek uh, to regain EU membership as soon as possible. I think that's, you know, been very clear in terms of our messaging. One of the pieces of legislation we brought through in the last parliament before the election was the Continuity yeah. Act. And the Continuity Bill, or now Act as it is, allows us to keep pace with key pieces of European legislation, which means that when we do reapply, and we need to remind people of that too, no one has, no yeah. country has ever left and then rejoined. So when we reapply, um, we will be saying to the EU, look where we've kept pace with a number of key powers, a key kind of policy areas. We haven't diverged. We've tried to, you know, stay with you on a number of these 
you know, different um, aspirations. And I think that's really important as the UK, of course, and the Conservative government try to pull us directly away from EU laws, which set the bar uh, in many different respects, for example, um, in terms of uh, legislation around employment, which, of course, the Conservatives might not have liked us to have kept pace with. So the EU actually held us to a higher bar, I think, than the Tories were comfortable with. And that's what this is ultimately about, isn't it? A race to the bottom. So we do that through the continuity legislation, which allows us to keep pace, which is hugely important in the interim period Mm -hmm. and will hopefully also help us to rejoin the EU when we get to that stage. Well, that leads me into my next question, which I can kind of guess because of what you've just said. But moving forward, how confident are you that an independent Scotland would be accepted into the EU? For example, economist Andrew Wilson, uh, you know, said in a previous podcast that providing the foundations are laid during the intervening period um, that it should be a relatively easy thing I know from uh, people that speak to me across Europe and all different from all different political uh, parties there that they want to see Scotland rejoining the EU what, what's your thoughts on that um, from my experience I would say that um, we will be very warmly welcome back in I think that Donald Tusk has said that on the record um, that we would be welcomed enthusiastically back by the European Union if we um, were independent, of course, from the rest of the UK. I would think more generally now, and I was not on MSP in 2014, but there is a better understanding in the EU now of the political differences in Scotland Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to perhaps there was uh, in 2014. I think that wasn't necessarily as well understood now. I think there's also a degree of sympathy for Scotland Mm -hmm. um, that they feel we've not been particularly well and you'll know that as well in your own um, discussions with with colleagues in the EU but there is a feeling of actually that wasn't great it wasn't particularly fair Um, it was democratic yeah absolutely (laughs) and uh, I think that's much better understood now than it was in 2014 Um, and remember of course the, the UK government at the time in 2014 was actively encouraging member states to speak out against it and um you know I think we will find ourselves in a much different environment this time around than we were in 2014. Uh, I think there is that understanding and that recognition that Scotland has been badly treated. And actually, if Scotland wants independence, then, of course, it should be allowed to rejoin the European Union as a former member state. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, looking even at the kind of political intentions of the map of the UK, I think most people in Europe now see... uh, in yellow and blue, the differences around our aspirations as a country and where we wanted to go. We wanted to stay in the European Union and we were dragged out against our will. Mm. And there is an understanding, I think, too, that the SNP's positioning on this has always been, well, look, okay, if there's going to be a referendum and if Scotland is taken out against our will, then we will have to have another referendum. I think that's pretty well understood in the EU. And and, yeah, in my own experience of having spoken to, um, for example, the European Friends of Scotland, who are a really important group uh, uh, in the European Parliament. There's a warmth towards Scotland. I don't want to speak out of turn in terms of their own political views. There's certainly a warmth and an understanding that Scotland wants to come back. Mm. And I think that that would be um, warmly well received, as, of course, uh, Mr Tusk and others have said on the record. And, and there is precedent if not for this exact circumstance for the eu to move very very quickly yeah. in accepting new members we've seen east germany come in when the reunification with uh, with west germany was 
uh, happened. They were they were able to do it virtually overnight to come into the European yeah. Union. But, I think yeah, I think you're right though because often um, some unionist commentators will suggest that Scotland would be at the back of the queue. There isn't a queue. <laughs> it's ludicrous. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's just it's not the yeah. case. Yeah. So we need to try and be pragmatic in some of these challenges. And these points yeah. were of course made in 2014. Additionally, it's just that we're in a completely different political environment now. The you know the UK is out. And actually, it's for those in the no camp, as it were, yeah. uh, to sell the benefits of the UK being out to the people of Scotland. And I think that's going to be a lot more challenging in the next referendum. Well, I've yet to say, despite many promptings, anybody giving me a list of benefits of being yeah. in the UK uh, union just now, they've been challenged on that so many times. But, but there are some people within the independence movement that are against Scotland rejoining the EU post-independence. Mm-hmm. So not everybody is as pro-Europe as you or I. Um, how, how important do you feel EU membership is to the future of Scotland? What would you say to those people? I think it's vitally important. Um, you know, you represent a constituency which um, directly benefited, of course, from, from EU membership in terms Indeed. of the investment in Many infrastructure times. and roads. And I'm often reminded of that. Um, the Kessie Bridge is a, is a permanent reminder every time. There you I, go. I, yeah. Go well, the these night. EU signs are all over the Highlands, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Because that investment came at a time when the UK government were not prioritising Scotland. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to remind people of that. But I think in terms of the geopolitics of where we are just now, we've seen it, of course, in the last week with um, the Australia, UK, US kind of manoeuvrings, as it were. We need to be part of um, the EU because it's important to Scotland's future. It's important to international solidarity and to work with our nearest neighbours. And often in the 2014 referendum, we were told that we wouldn't be working with England, our nearest neighbour. Of course we will. Of course we'll work with England when we're independent. But that doesn't mean we don't work with the EU. And it's hugely important that we have that solidarity. But equally, it's important for our businesses. It's important to trade, for education, for all the different reasons and the ways in which we benefited from EU membership previously. We mustn't let people forget about that. Mm -hmm. And I think as the challenges of Brexit get worse, because they are going to get worse um, as some of these uh, challenges we've spoken to today kind of play out, people will recognise that and have a better understanding of it. It's just deeply regrettable that it had to come to this um, for there to be, I suppose, any sense from the UK government. And in the next referendum, of course, it will be, I imagine, a very positive campaign, but it will be hugely challenging, as you say, for them to argue Mm -hmm. the benefits of the status quo of of the UK in the the same way that they did in 2014, because the UK in the 2014 uh, referendum doesn't exist anymore. Indeed, and those broad shoulders have only served to drag us down. As you've mentioned, the Internal Market Bill, the EU Withdrawal Act, all of these things impacting on Scotland just now, not to mention the national insurance, the cuts to universal credit, um, you know, the fact that we were rising food bank uses, higher energy prices, all of those things, a list goes on there. Finally, though, Jenny, and, and, and I'd like to ask you, uh, after, if everything uh, goes as we would hope and the, the referendum produces a positive result, after rejoining the EU, where do you see Scotland's place in Europe? What, In other words, what do our friends, the other member states, get out of Scotland being a member? Oh, great question, Drew. Um, well, they get a sensible uh, person at the table who wants to work with them, who wants to talk to them, who wants to uh, trade with them, who wants to build on that you know, solidarity and spirit of friendship, which is all about the European Union's founding principles. And I think that's hugely important. They have in Scotland a trusted ally. 
and in all of our conversations with the UK, but equally with the EU, we have to remember that in the way that we behave and we reflect on some of the challenges perhaps experienced by other nations. We in Scotland held a referendum in 2014, which was democratically agreed to by the UK government and by the Scottish government. We need to remember that going into the next referendum. We uh, behave ourselves, we, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. we treat each other with respect. And I think that's hugely important. And when we see some of the behaviour uh, emanating from uh, the Conservatives in government, uh, we need to set ourselves apart from that and say, actually, Scotland's yeah. different. Well, We're here to, you know, take things seriously and we want to be treated seriously too. So we have in the manifesto, for example, a commitment to develop a feminist foreign policy. I think that's really important when you look at um, some of the challenges that are being experienced in Afghanistan at the moment. I think that Scotland has something that we can contribute to, to world mm. conflict. We're also establishing um, a peace institute. That was another commitment in the manifesto. Again, that speaks to our values as a country. And when we go forward, we can't, you know, we have to remind people about our values too. And that's maybe a little bit about soft power, but it's also about what Scotland has to offer. So when we come to the table, as you say, we're not just arriving, we're back aren't you pleased to see us well actually we're back and we've got things we want to say and things we want to work with you on vaccine rollout for example in poorer countries i think is an area which we have uh, committed to increase our spend on international development by a third in the election we would like to do more in that space as you know international development is largely reserved but hang on a second we've got something we can contribute here wouldn't it be great if we could work with our european friends and neighbors as opposed to being consistently ignored by a UK government, which is meant to represent us on issues like international development. So I think we've got a lot of things to bring to the table. I think we will be welcome back in. Um, it's just uh, about the bit in the middle and how we get there next. And of course, how we get there will be um, expertly done by uh, the First Minister and we will we will plan how we, we get to that referendum. But um, the challenge, of course, just now is balancing the COVID impacts um, with when to hold that referendum but as you know it'll be before the end of 2023 and i'm sure like you um, i can't get, wait to, to get <laughs> back out there on the doorsteps and speaking to people safely because um i think it is an issue that's not going to go away i don't think that the independence question has been resolved um, in the way that some commentators think it has or it was in 2014. well i couldn't agree more i think you've described scotland as not only a good global citizen but as we know you know, a, a participant, a willing participant in being European, a, a strong European neighbour for uh, for many hundreds of years. And uh, it would be great to be able to formalise that as a member state in our own right. Uh, Jenny, Jenny, can I thank you very much indeed for joining us today on Scotland's Choice. And uh, thank and thanks to, uh, to, to you for making the time today. Thank you very much, Drew. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, there we have it. Westminster has torn Scotland out of the EU and, of course, out of the Erasmus scheme along with it. This was something that benefited not only students, but also communities right across Scotland. The UK government is now more right-wing than it was under Margaret Thatcher. And whilst independence will come with challenges, the experience of over a decade of austerity, and yet more to come as Brexit unfolds, means it's now more challenging for Scotland to stay in the UK. Scotland would of course work with the rest of the UK post-independence, but it's not just Scotland that would benefit from us having a seat at the EU table. The rest of Europe would gain from us too. My thanks to Jenny for taking part, and to you for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. 
If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Thank you.